Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. This week, I'm thrilled to welcome Andrew Wallace. Andrew is a journalist who has written about Central Africa for years, and he's particularly interested in the history of Rwanda and of the genocide. In 2014, he published his book, Silent Accomplice, The Untold Story of France's Role in the Rwandan Genocide. And now he's published a lengthy study on the origins and consequences of the genocide. The book is called Stepped in Blood, and in it, Andrew concentrates on the internal politics of the Rwandan regime, in particular, the accumulation of power by a small group of relatives and friends of the president. He does a fantastic job of tracing the regional and familial conflicts, which destabilized Rwandan affairs and contributed greatly to the decision to adopt a strategy of genocide. It's a fascinating book. I'm really looking forward to our discussion uh, about it. So, Andrew, with that, welcome, and thanks for joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies. Thanks very much, uh, Kelly, for that very kind and uh, a generous uh, introduction there. Um, and, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, looking forward to, to chatting about the book and, and indeed, anything else that uh, uh, you want to ask me. Wonderful. So, so before we start the book, um, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you became a journalist and how you got interested in, in Africa and Rwanda. Sure. Well, it's, uh, it goes back a fair while, actually. Uh, I first went to Rwanda way back in 1990, uh, as most people do then and indeed now, which is to see the, the fabled mountain gorilla of Diane Fossey fame. Um, and when we got there, we discovered actually there was a civil war on, uh, which we knew nothing about. The uh, tour operator had forgotten to, uh, to, to put that in, 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 in the notes of what was happening. So there was a little bit of a shock. And in, in, in fact, the, uh, my, my friend I was with in university never even got to see the guerrillas because he ended up under house arrest uh, because he'd foolishly put journalist on his entry pass. So uh, the, the, he never did get to see the mountain. I, I luckily did, and uh, I would... Thoroughly recommend it to anyone. I think it's one of the top five things you'll ever do in your life. They are just incredible creatures. But um, yeah, a few years later, um, I, I ended up deciding to, um, having done degrees in um, history and then uh, peace studies, uh, I got involved in journalism. I started off just the usual local journalism, local paper. Um, and then I sort of really, there, there was something telling me I needed to, I don't know, there's something fascinating about Rwanda. Um, uh, I did a master's degree and during that I sort of began to look especially at this uh, question of the role of France, which had really not been explored, which I found incredible. Uh, and the more I found out about the complicity of France uh, before, during, and indeed after the genocide, um, the more I felt this needed to to come out, really. Uh, and so I, I started writing there, and 
and sort of gave up the local journalism and became a freelance journalist um, and spent time to and fro Rwanda writing up on this subject and uh, I've been doing that ever since I guess so that's more than 20 years now so this is um this is a really thoughtful deep rich book that must have taken you a long time to write what why did you decide to write it yeah um you're you're right about the length uh it was a, meant to come out for the 2014 uh 20th commemoration it's just come out for the 25th um so we're a little bit uh yeah it's a little bit one of those uh, over budget and over over long and over everything really um but there we go it's best laid plans uh it was it was an incredible um well it's taken seven years eight years really uh and it's a fairly typical book in the sense that one lead has led to another, has led to another. Um, and just when I'm thinking I'm getting to the heart of the issue, something else has turned up. And I've, I've been exceptionally fortunate given um, access to sources that really no one else has seen or come across yet uh, in terms of people who were there, who have not spoken before, in terms of intelligence reports, in terms of court reports police reports, all sorts of information. Um, and that has uh, had a huge impact, really, because I, I've been able that The point, I suppose, of the book was there's a lot of uh, books out there on the genocide, obviously, a lot of very good books. But they do tend to sort of start in 1990 when the Civil War happened uh, and they end pretty soon after the genocide. So... Uh, I was aware that really, you know, the, the genocide era, men like Theoness Bagasora didn't just uh, land in Kigali in April 1994 when the genocide started and then disappear in July when it ended. He was around for decades before, as indeed was the regime, uh, while this genocide and genocidal um, genocidal policy really was slowly, inevitably, it would seem, um, borne out. Uh, and also I wanted to take the story up to the current date because these individuals didn't disappear. They fled after the genocide. Some of them have faced justice. Some of them are still still free, are still out there on our streets. And um, I wanted to raise some questions about the international, uh, the various international support the genocidal regime got before, during, and indeed after the genocide, and questions, I think, which are highly significant today, um, but again, have not really been tackled. Well, let's start at the beginning, uh, and maybe the beginning is to... to start at the beginning is to say something maybe about the importance of regional and family connections. So, so can you say something about the dynamics of politics in, in, in Rwanda after independence? How, how does politics work? Yeah, I mean, that's really, in many ways, that's the nub of the question, um, because you need to understand that to understand 1994, um, because 1994 happened because people were trying to protect what they had. 
uh, as much as as much as uh, most people say, oh, this was a tribal event, it was an ethnic event, actually, first and foremost, like most genocides, it was a political event. So at independence, you had this strange scenario where the Belgians had, for the previous 40, 50 years of their colonial rule, very much uh, favoured the small Tutsi elite. And they they effectively ruled through this uh, group of the king, the chiefs, the sub-chiefs, uh, about 1,000, 1,500 individuals. The rest of the country, both Hutu and Tutsi, were, were poor, were forgotten, were basically had very difficult lives indeed. At independence in about 1958-59, the Belgians did a very swift volte-face. They they worked out that the majority would indeed take power and if they wanted any influence in the coming years they needed to be on the side of the majority so they they, they swiftly turned to support uh, the Hutu majority led by a man called Gregoire Kebanda who went on to become the first president and Kebanda was sort of formed by both the church, the Catholic Church, and Archbishop Herodin, who was the, the leading uh, cleric in the region, and also by the Governor-General, uh, a man called Haroy. And really, Kebanda was, to some extent, um, a man who had been shaped uh, by these Belgian individuals. However, as you go through the 60s, as Kay Banda took power, he really replaced the colonial power with his own one-party state. So many authorities would say, actually, the Rwandans, uh, the Rwandan people were no freer under Kay Banda than they had been under the colonial state. They, they, you had to be a member of this one-party Hutu, uh, Hutu party, um, MDR, Palmer Hutu, uh, and really, you had no freedom for anything else. Added to which, uh, if you were Tutsi, there was a good chance you were going to struggle. Hundreds of thousands of Tutsi fled. When some attempted to come back, there were genocidal massacres, which Keabanda um, both authorised and seemed to have organised um, in 59, 61, 62, 63. Uh, which the world, the UN, looked on and did nothing. And obviously, 31 years later, we'd have the same uh, history would repeat itself. Uh, so you, you've got really in the, the 60s, you've got this very small um, group, uh, which is from the majority Hutu party. But, and that's worth emphasising, that Keabanda, like his successor, was very much concerned with having his ministers uh, and his government coming from this small area in the centre of Rwanda, Kitarama, a small dusty town in the middle of the country. So if you wanted to get on, you needed to be a Hutu and you needed to be from Kitarama. If you didn't really come up to those two um, 
then then you were going to struggle in Rwanda at the time. And then you, um, of course, one one of the uh, people who managed to to ascend to some level of power is his successor, Juvenal Habyarimana. Um, can you say a little bit about Juvenal and his wife? And I think I'm pronouncing this right, Agat, and um, and their families and why their relationship and their family um, ties were so important. Sure, I, I think. Uh... I mean, Habir Mana to me is a fascinating figure, far more so than, uh, if I may say, the, the current Rwandan president who seems to tax so many people and Habir Mana has been forgotten. But Habir Mana is a fascinating guy. You know, he, he came from a, a very poor background. Uh, his father was given some, um, some land to sort of till the soil. Um, and Habir Mana, as a, a young boy, was, was out there in the fields with his father at all hours, uh, just trying to subsist. Um, he, he, first of all, trained as a priest in a seminary. He then moved to uh, to train as a doctor in what is now the DRC. Um, when the DRC, uh, at the time, was going through its own independence uh, and turbulence, he was effectively kicked out. He was recruited... Uh, as recruit number one, in fact, of the new Rwandan uh, army. Um, shortly after, uh, basically around this time, he met um, a lady called Agat Kanziga. Uh, Agat was from the same area in the north of the country, the Bushiru area, area of Rwanda. Um, they fell madly in love. Uh, they got married in 1962. Um, and really, this couple are going to have uh, this huge impact on Rwandan history, and not just them, but their family, because you know Rwandan society is very based around families more so than we are in the West. Um, and in that family, you had a series of highly ambitious individuals. Agat herself. Uh, highly individual a highly um, ambitious individual her brother a man called Proteas Zigunyesu who thankfully was known uh, as Mushu Zed or just Zed um, a former school teacher uh, Zed was a man if nothing um, but ambitious he knew what he wanted and he wanted power and he, he wanted wealth and with this match uh, he felt um, his sister could bring it through his uh, brother-in-law. Also, there was a man called Elisa Gatwa, Agat's uh, uh, cousin, and another individual, another cousin called Serafin. Um Now, as time goes on into the 60s, uh, it becomes clear that Habir Umana is getting restive. He, he quickly works his way up. K. Banda trusts him. He, he becomes a godfather to his children. Um, the two men get on very well. But it becomes clear that K. Banda's regime is in trouble, as I said, basically because of the regionalism, because he just will not allow anyone from outside the Skitarama area uh, to come into power. Uh, Habir Imana from the north um, 
it gets restive as do the numbers of military who are also from the north. And in 1973, there is a coup. Uh, Kebanda is pushed aside um, in a so-called bloodless coup. And quickly, Habiramana, once he's in power, and certainly Agat, um, make sure that in the coming years, sort of every part of Rwandan society becomes a sort of a prey to their ambitions and their sort of grasping thirst for wealth, really. So let me ask a few questions or more specific questions about that period then. So um, one question, what, what role does the church play in responding to or cooperating with Heavy Armana in this in this period in the seventies and eighties. Yeah, the church has uh, an incredible hold on Rwandan society at the time. You you have to imagine that this is society where there's no television. Uh, there are not so many radios, and indeed, there's only really one radio, state radio, Rwanda, which spends most of its airtime uh, with programs praising the president. Not the most interesting thing to listen to after a hard day uh, farming on the hills. So you're you're pretty short of entertainment there. Uh, Rwanda is also a highly authoritarian country in the sense that the authority system, whether you're uh, a peasant in your uh, in, in your home on one of the, the, the thousand hills, you are part of a cell and the cell is part of a sector and the sector is part of a commune. The commune comes under a, a mayor, the mayor comes under a sub-prefet and then a prefet. So basically all the way up society is a sort of pyramid structure. Uh, and there is, you are born with a sense that you do as you are told. People um, above you are, are respected and, and they know best. And the church is very much part of the structure. And the church is vitally important for the government because where the government can't uh, disseminate its its wishes, um, today obviously you've got so many media and social media. Um, here you've got a society where at least half are illiterate. Uh, so they couldn't read a paper if they wanted to read a paper, but in fact, there was only a state paper anyway, uh, and really had almost no circulation outside the capital. Uh, it was difficult for the regime to get its uh, feelings known, uh, what it wanted. And so the church had a huge role, and it was the archbishops became appointees, really, of the regime. So for Habirmana, he appointed a man called uh, Vincent Zengyumva, who really had very little, he'd only been a priest for a few years, suddenly he became archbishop. And almost as soon as he became archbishop in, in the mid-70s, he was put onto the, the central committee of this one-party state. Habirmana had declared a one-party state, his, his one party was MRND, and you had the archbishop uh, on that, so whereas everyone in society had to wear a little sort of uh, a pin uh, buttonhole 
pin uh, with the president's face on it. You, the archbishop also wore this, uh, as well as uh, a, a crucifix, and you weren't quite sure whether his loyalties were one to one or the other. Um, but it did mean, you know, all the way down society, the local priests um, would be very much answering uh, to the commands a bit further up, uh, and people would obey what they were told. So the, the church is vital, and unfortunately it also reflects the society in general. So when things go badly, when famine begins in the country, the church, instead of doing much about it, stays silent. When genocidal massacres start at the beginning of the 90s, again the church remains silent. Uh, the discrimination against the Tutsi minority, uh, again, it is reflected in the church. Uh, Birmania doesn't make Tutsi bishops until right at the very end of his regime. Um, and what, There's an attempt to make one in the, the late 80s. Uh, there is a lot of opposition, and Birmania effectively gets the man sacked before he's, uh, he's even had a chance uh, to take up his position as a bishop. So the, the church um, unfortunately reflects the regime rather than uh, any sense of of this, um, as, as you see in, in perhaps in the DRC today, a sort of a counterculture against the, the politics of the day. So another follow-up question. Um, in, in writing about Rwanda, at least I've found a tendency to suggest that ethnic relations became more stable and perhaps less prominent in Rwandan society under Javier Manan, in contrast to uh, the earlier president. Is, what, what's your sense of the relationships between Hutus and Tutsis and, and, and the level of opportunity and freedom available to Tutsis under the Javier Manan regime? Well, since I mean, I think you're 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 right in that assessment. Really, uh, I think under Kayabanda, the early years of Kayabanda, when the, the the Tutsi, some of the Tutsi refugees tried to come back, and there's this Kayabanda, very cleverly use, uses really a, it's a colonial era tactic, this sort of scapegoating, uh, where the Hutu majority are getting restive, there's splits appearing, those in Kiturama, those in Butari, those in Gisenyi different areas um, a sort of there's signs of splitting he by um, aiming uh, totally at this Tutsi minority scapegoating it he is able to sort of pull together the Hutus it's you know unless you come behind me then you're going to let the Tutsi back in before you know it you'll be back under a king um, and you know you'll have only yourselves to blame when Habiamana comes to power, he promises peace and unity uh, um, regardless of region or indeed ethnicity. And you can certainly say in the years 73 to 90, ethnicity plays a very small part. You don't hear of Tutsis being locked up. You don't hear of um, pogroms or massacres. And really it's because the Tutsi minority at that point had been completely diminished in almost every area of society. So there is a um, 
a, a number, a quota, which Tutsis are allowed to apply for jobs, um, which reflects their presence in society, about 13-14%. But in fact, in, in some areas, in the military, for example, there are no senior Tutsi figures. Uh, there is one um, colonel, um, but effectively no one else uh, is, is able to go anywhere. As I said about the church, you know, an attempt to even make a Tutsi bishop was vetoed by the regime. Um, but in terms of even going to primary or secondary school or university for a Tutsi, it was remarkably difficult. And unless you knew one of these, um, I'll use the term Akazu here for the first time, um, uh, and I want to say a little bit about who they were. Um, the Akazu, which is really what my book centers on, was this small group around the president's wife. So an Akazu in Kinyawanda is, it effectively means a small hut. And that is the familial hut where the family lives. And an Akazu is really this small hut of, of people. And that's where the power is in Rwanda under Habiramana. Certainly with the president, but actually the Akazu is separate, I would say, in some ways from the president. It is about Agat and it's about Zed. Um, and Sofa and Sagatwa. And between them, they slowly allow power to drift down as other relatives are also members of this group. And it sort of comes down through society. So the jobs the Kazu can't get um, processed themselves, they give to subordinates, they recruit people. So all the way down through the church, through business, through the administration, mayors, prefects, sector leaders, all of them would answer to uh, a figure uh, going up this um, sort of mafia group, really. And the Kazu were effectively a parallel power. So you had the mainstream power that you'd expect, the government and ministers and the parliament. But actually, the real power, as Rwandans knew all too well, was with this parallel, almost mafia group around Agat and around Zed. And they appointed their own people. Um, if you're a businessman and you fell out with a member of a Kazu, your business would, could be shut overnight, you could be imprisoned. Indeed, to open a business, you would need to appoint probably one of these figures uh, as shareholders. You would have to give them some of the profits for them to allow it to go forward. Uh, and the same was true if you wanted to be promoted, if you wanted to go to university. That's that's how it worked. Uh, but it didn't mean society really was based not on um, any sort of ability, but it was purely based on your relationship with a member of this group of Akazu. And just like Ker Banda's Achilles heel was that he appointed purely from this central section of Rwanda uh, around Gitarama, the Achilles heel for Hibiamana was he appointed from his Bushiru homeland in the north, um, near to the town, the border town of Gisenyi. So most of Akazu came from this, this small area. And again, the biggest problem, I think, to come back to your question, in the 70s and 80s was a regionalist one. So the Tutsi had been almost totally emasculated. The Hutu, however, 
had also, to an effect, been split and emasculated. If you came from Gitarami, if you came from the South Butari or the East, there was a good chance you too, just like the Tutsi, couldn't get any preferment in jobs or in business. You couldn't get your children to school or university um, because that was uh, something reserved purely for the Bashiru, those who uh, had Akazu uh, godfathers, as it were, to support them. So a lot of the time when you read um, accounts of the of the evolution, the decision of the of Habri Armana to introduce a multi-party system, you read about pressure from the West. But but the sense I get from your book is that um, actually there's as much internal pressure as external pressure. That um, the the corruption uh, involved in the government was was creating or encouraging an economy that simply wasn't working. Am, am I reading that right? Yeah, the whole area of the sort of international supporters tends to come in, for most critics, you know, they look in 1994 and obviously the first thing they look at is the the failure of the UN, swiftly followed by the failures of the US and the UK and, and then obviously France comes in. What was interesting to me is looking back into the 70s and 80s, how the international actors who knew about the corruption of the regime and knew about the, the human rights abuses, uh, continued to push money and to support this regime, even though it was uh, pretty dire in what it was doing. And uh, you, you read reports uh, being sent back from diplomats, and really there is no mention of some of these incredible abuses. And instead, you know, you've got Germany, Canada, France, Belgium, uh, Switzerland, literally throwing money at a government. And yet, for example, mm. uh, in, after, the, after the 1973 coup, which, which Habir was quick to send diplomats all around the world to say this was a bloodless coup, you know, Kayabanda, the president, is safe and, um, you know, you, you can trust us. Actually, in the coming couple of years, uh, um, probably three, four hundred members of that Kayabanda regime, including the president and his wife, end up dead. Uh, some of them being tortured to death. Mm. Now, it's, it's, it's clear that the church knew this was going on. Um, and it's clear that a lot of the, the Western powers knew this was going on. But obviously, for real politik, for the, the reasons of uh, geostrategic policy, they were prepared to look the other way. And in the, in the 80s, it's also clear that groups like the World Bank, which are pumping millions into Rwanda, knew that this was a country on the brink and the old methods weren't simply not working. The Birmana, as a peasant from the hills, was very much obsessed with an agrarian society. It was a, sort of similar to the sort of Khmer Rouge, really. He didn't trust... Uh, any form of intelligentsia, he saw them as a threat. Uh, so by 1990, the the only university only had about 3,000 in it. Uh, mm. Secondary school attendance was uh, was also barely into the 20 percents. Um, uh, illiteracy was extraordinarily high, and the fact was that's something the regime wanted. The idea was that you worked on the hill, 
you subsisted on the hill in this agrarian economy, and that was the, your sole ambition, really. Uh, that mm. all fell apart in the late 80s when first their coffee prices died, and this was effectively Rwanda's only real source of foreign currency. And secondly, a famine hit the south of the country, uh, and people started to die. And it, it took months for Habirmana to make the three-hour trip down into the uh, into the south to see what was going on. Uh, but the World Bank knew about this. It knew that the millions being pumped into the economy, uh, much of it was being diverted into the Kazu's own foreign bank accounts. And what little did get through um, was really going to the wrong part of the economy, as it were. It, it wasn't having any impact at all. Mm. It was just being swallowed up uh, in, in short-term aid to try and keep the people alive. So that there's, a, there's a big failure in the, in the 70s and 80s and early 90s where there is clearly information. Uh, Habirman had a number of very close contacts. There's, there's a, a, a Swiss man called Charles Genere, uh, who was presidential advisor, Peter Molt uh, from the Rhineland Palantinate uh, from Germany, uh, obviously the World Bank, as I've said, and the IMF. Uh, there are a number of individuals who are very close to the regime, advise the regime, but at no point seem to have said to Habirman that your policies, your growing policies, are not only not working, but if you continue with them, a large part of your population is going to be starving and unemployed, which is indeed what happens. And you get, in 1990, in a way, the perfect storm. At this point, the RPF beside uh, the Rwandan Tutsis who had fled abroad, hundreds of thousands of them in the previous three decades, decide since Habermana won't let them back peacefully that they will come back by force and they invade from, uh, from Uganda. And at this point, uh, it is a sort of perfect storm for Habermana. He's got famine, he's got the RPF uh, launching a, a civil war. And to make matters worse, um, this is the point where a political opposition, uh, mostly Hutu political opposition, are legalised. Um, and he finds himself up against uh, his own, in a way, his own people. And the question is, will he manage to out-Hutu the Hutu, uh, as it were? <laughs> and so... So what is the relationship between Habi Aramana and the other members of the Akazu of Agat and Agat's relatives? And how, how does this increasing instability in politics affect that relationship? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating question because it, what attracts me to Habi Aramana is he's a very human individual in a way. And, and you can see he is less ambitious than his wife, he's less greedy than his wife, he's certainly less extreme than his wife. Um, having said that, he is all of the above, um, but maybe his his version of extremism isn't quite as extreme as Akazu's. You know, at, at what point do you keep up this need for ambition, power and wealth? And what you see, I think, in the 90s is this perfect storm comes in and he is surrounded by enemies from every side. 
Um, he's said that obviously the RPF, but he's clearly got enemies um, within the Hutu majority as well. Um, other parties which are either more extreme than his own MRND, like the CDR, uh, though the CDR is, is very much linked to his own, uh, um, or certainly those from the south and centre of the country who feel they've been marginalised in, in the previous uh, 20 years of his rule. Um, and he's got uh, a large amount of unemployment, he's got this famine going on, he's got uh, foreign donors who have suddenly got real to the fact that this money is not getting anywhere near where it should do and corruption is basically killing the country. So Habimana as a person is, is very interesting because you can see he's even pictures of him show how much he ages in just two or three years. Between 1990 and 93, you've suddenly got this man who is falling apart at the seams. Uh, and, you know, you've got the stories of the marriage slowly falling apart as well. The Birmana going up to his hotel he owns on the hill at Ribeiro and actually being banned from entering by a gat. And so the president's storming down the hill and it takes the archbishop to come over and do some more marriage guidance counselling, uh, which he seemed to do a lot of in the 90s. Um, and Habi Amana himself had several illegitimate children. Indeed, he had a Tutsi mistress. Uh, so that was going on. There's rumours of Gat also was having affairs. Um, so it was not a happy family group uh, by any means. And Habi Amana, 92, 93, is under so much pressure, it's quite clear, and he says it to people, including his own family, that he wants to get out. He's, he's had enough. He can't take this pressure anymore. He's surrounded by enemies. And what's in it for him? He, he didn't become president for all this uh, <laughs> aggravation. He just wanted the, the sort of the power and the wealth. He certainly didn't want um, uh, the, the pressure that's on him. And as you're getting into 92, 93, one of the biggest pressures is actually not just from the RPF, um, who are repeatedly attacking from the north as ceasefires and they re-attack, and really they're only held back by by Mitterrand's French troops. Um, the biggest threat is coming from Hutu extremists uh, around the military, uh, the NS Bagasura, but also from civilians. Uh, people like Joseph Sirera. Um, and they make it clear, if they spell out Habir Mana, if there is any deal with the RPF, if there is any deal which in any way impedes on their power and their wealth, that he is going to be the first person to suffer. Uh, and Habir Mana, as I said, really, as a result, wants to get out. And it's, it's clear he is warned uh, by several people that his own life is at risk. Um, and really, his assassination, when it comes, is is not big news to anyone because it uh, people in 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 Rwanda, both uh, foreigners and Rwandans themselves, have had all seen this coming. So we talk about the genocide starting in 1994, but but you and others highlight the fact that Rwandan. Rwandan society had become a very violent place in the years since the beginning of the Civil War. What, 
where does that violence come from and 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 who's making the decisions um to turn to violence as a strategy well it's it's clear within the i mean the rpf invade at the start of october in 1990 uh, 1990 um within a week of that you've got genocidal massacres taking place at a place called Kibilira, where um, several hundred Tutsi are are killed, uh, brutally killed. Um, The local prefect is is held responsible for it. But it becomes clear this is not a one-off. And in 1991, 92, 93, there are more and more of these genocidal massacres. Uh, There is an international inquiry both the UN launch one and a number of human rights organizations launch their own inquiry. And all of them blame the regime. So the people are making these decisions, the people are organizing and the people are getting arming the killers, getting the killers to the place, making sure the local population is on board. Um, it's This is all coming from Akazu. This is coming from this group around... Uh, the, the president, um, and it, it's clear from the UN report and the human rights reports that um, this is this is the case. What what is the point of these genocidal massacres? I mean, why why in a way is the regime going to this length? Well, as we say, if you turn back history by three decades, this is exactly the same tactic uh, K. Bander used. Uh, he was under threat because of his own regionalist divisionism. Hutus were upset with him. So you target, you scapegoat the minority. And this is what happens in the early 90s. Uh, in a way, the biggest danger from to Habiamana is not from the RPF. It's from his own side. It's from the Hutu in the south and in the center of the country who were deeply unhappy with him, who also held him responsible for the murder of Ke Banda, who they they saw as the the real Hutu leader um, all those years before. So the idea is if you suddenly uh, say the Tutsis are a threat, a real threat, if if we don't stop them, if we don't come together as the majority, before you know it, there will be a new Tutsi kingdom. Um, The RPF is just part of a a huge effort to uh, have Tutsis take over not just Rwanda, but the whole region. Um, and bring in an Anglophone culture, a, a foreign culture into the country. So you're convincing local people that really it's it's dog eat dog. Either uh, you target your Tutsi neighbours who you've lived alongside all your life, and indeed there's plenty of intermarriage, you speak the same language, you go to the same church, your children play at the same school, but either you target them or there's a good chance that the sort of fifth column within society will eventually launch an attack. And before you know it, you'll be back to the 1930s of Hutu serfdom to Tutsi uh, overlords. Uh, and this narrative plays very, very successfully in, in areas. So these genocidal massacres, uh, while they are uh, a political risk, there's a risk they will alienate some of Birmania's international supporters, as they do. Uh, Belgium, for example, is alienated by it. France continues uh, 
stay uh, on Habiramana's side, and in a way that gives him the leverage to continue with this with this tactic. So, <clears throat> excuse me, Habiramana's plane is shot down. Uh, how does it happen that the decision is made to move from genocidal massacres to genocide? Well, that, as I said, I, for me, Habir Mana is never the fully-fledged extremist uh, that Bagasura wanted. And really what you have on the 6th of April, 94, is, is really the same as, as you have in early July, 1973. That is a military coup. Uh, Bagasura effectively, uh, important members not just Hibir Mana, uh, of the regime down the plane, most notably the army chief of staff. It's very unusual for an army chief of staff to travel on the same plane as a, as a president for security reasons, but uh, this happens and both of them die. It means effectively that Bagasura, who was a sort of, uh, he was at that, this point really a civilian, quickly gets back into his uh, army fatigues um, and is able to effectively seize control. Uh, when this doesn't come about quite as he wants, uh, his idea was clearly to have a military uh, regime put in place. When the United Nations makes clear that this is not acceptable to uh, to them, then Bagasura goes to Plan B, which is to put into place uh, a hand-picked uh, Hutu extremist government, uh, so-called Hutu power, which is the, the extreme elements of the Hutu opposition parties. Uh, and they effectively do his bidding in the following 100 days. And uh, uh, Bagasura, though, is the real power behind them. As, as you said earlier, one of the real contributions of your book is, is that you pursue the story after um, the defeat of the Rwandan government, or government, or maybe I should say the, uh, the fleeing of the Rwandan government to outside of, of Rwanda. So, so how did the, the leaders of, of the Rwandan government leaders, Bagasora and others, how do they respond to, to the RPF's victory? What is their hope in fall of 1994 and early 1995? Well, I mean, it's to me this is another fascinating area which has sort of been uh, avoided um, because you get into July, uh, and what is clear that the French sent an intervention force into the south of the country, so-called Operation Turquoise, um, which is meant to save the Tutsi, but in fact there's very few Tutsi left by then to save. But one, the, the biggest impact of this French force is to allow the not just a lot of refugees, innocent Hutu uh, and indeed some Tutsi, to flee um, uh, across the border into Tanzania, Zaire and uh, Burundi. But it allows the interim government, this genocidal government, to flee en masse, along with the Intuahamwe militia who have done most of the killing and indeed uh, Bagasura's army. So they go across the border and for the next three or four years, and indeed to some extent some of them are still there today, uh, 
they are there, they're rearming, they're retraining, and their, their tactic is they want to come back in, they want to invade Rwanda um, and to seize power again. Uh, and so you get these huge refugee camps, uh, UN refugee camps, um, almost every age, aid agency in the world, it's a sort of a camp of a thousand aid agencies, is there uh, suddenly interested in, in helping out. But of course, you know, they're helping out not just the innocent, but the guilty. And, and some like M, um, MSF, um, in the end, say, look, we can't continue here. We're, we're feeding the killers. We are clothing the killers. Um, and the money we're giving to refugees is just actually not going to refugees. The, the killers are taking it and using it to rearm uh, and to launch uh, genocidal attacks uh, back into Rwanda. So in, in the years afterwards, once the International Criminal Tribunal is set up in late 94, uh, slowly, slowly it becomes clear that this invasion is never going to happen. And the proponents of the genocide then decide uh, they need to make themselves scarce. And slowly they, they move away from the region. Some of them come to the West or they come... Uh, come to Europe, they come to the US, North America, Canada, um, New Zealand, uh, in order to live a comfortable life. All of them have um, embezzled millions of dollars. Most of them uh, uh, are not strapped for cash. So uh, it's a nice, quiet retirement. Um, some of them have been, international justice has caught up with some of them, uh, notably Bagasura. Uh, and the highly controversial court, the International Criminal Tribunal, which has cost about $2.5 billion over its um, its years. Uh, controversial, it, it's done some wonderful things in the sense that um, it has got hundreds and uh, thousands of gigabytes worth of documentation, um, which has been so important moving forward to block the, the growing revisionist denial conspiracy theories, which unfortunately seem to come after every every genocide from the Holocaust onwards. Um, so the International Court has been very important in for that, but in terms of handing out uh, meaningful sentences, um, I think most people in Rwanda would say it's been it's been pretty disastrous. Um, Men like Anatol Zengiumva, for example, the so-called butcher of Gisenyi, who he was so thorough that uh, all the Tutsis in the region, probably a hundred thousand plus, had died within the first few weeks. Um, he got a life sentence at trial, and then the, the highly controversial appeal judge Theodore Meron um, slashed this uh, down to fifteen years, and, and he was released. Uh, and Meron has done that to, to more than a dozen other cases as well. Uh, so the court has been, that has been um, a bit of a problem to say the least. And also, you know, you're looking at a world now where probably at least 600 um, genocidaire are still uh, out there living in various communities, mostly in the West. Um, and there is a sense of sort of fatigue, um, apathy. Uh, oh, sorry, pretty, uh, genocide apathy when it comes to actually governments taking seriously the Genocide Convention to prevent and punish. 
um, they didn't prevent, and it's a mute point whether they have managed to punish um, so many uh, of these individuals are, are still out there and free. And uh, I think often for domestic reasons, uh, notably finance, um, these trials are remarkably expensive to put on. If you've got to try someone in a European country, you've got to send uh, investigators all the way to Rwanda to find the witnesses, to get all the documents translated. Um, it's, it is expensive. And that clearly at a time of sort of austerity um, is is making many governments renege on their uh, ratification of the Genocide Convention and and do nothing. I mean, in my own country, the UK, it's it's highly unfortunate. In fact, since 1948, you know, the Genocide Convention came into being. Uh, in 70 years, the UK has not managed to prosecute a single person for genocide. And in that time, has only prosecuted one for war crimes, uh, despite being home to probably hundreds of war criminals in those 70 years. So um, there's a lot to be... Um, thought about uh, and a book I hope will raise this issue of international justice because uh, it's clearly important you know the, there are so many points where Habir Mana's regime could have been held to account in the 70s and in the 80s and in the early 90s even before the genocide happened and then after the genocide happened there were so many chances for this regime to be arrested and charged uh, instead they were allowed to escape uh, to destabilize the region, uh, and then to come to often uh, very pleasant retirements um, in in the West, where uh, we we've just allowed them to to continue to live with with pretty much total impunity. Well, we've taken a lot of your time, but I would like to pull back and just ask a a, a little bit different kind of question. I know you were just in Kigali um, and in Rwanda or uh, at least at the same time as the 25th, I guess, anniversary. Um, what did you see there? How, how was the genocide remembered? What, what was your impression of that experience? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a fairly regular visitor. I've been going to, you know, sort of two or three times a year for, for, for many years, probably years, sometimes uh, a little bit more. But I think the 25th commemoration did mark... What was interesting, as opposed to other commemorations, was the sense of here is a country very much with a future as well as a past. And it was commemorating the past, but also building on that past. Um, and an idea that we need to remember the past in order to move forward with the present and the future. We can't just... Um, obviously, Rwanda today is 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 sort of going places really in in terms of peace and security uh, I, I know people have um, issues with uh, areas of democracy or um, media freedom uh, and one hopes that they will come as peace and security continue in the country but I think um, most importantly it's remembering where Rwanda was 25 years ago and it was uh, I use the word ground zero because I think that sums it up really. This was a country where of a million inhabitants, uh, eight, uh, of eight million inhabitants, a million were dead. Um, 
maybe up to half um, two million had fled uh, and those who were left were highly traumatized um, either by what they'd done what they'd seen uh, what they'd uh, suffered um, you know ministers spent a couple of years there weren't there were no light bulbs um, there was no exchequer uh, there were no cars ministers were going about on bikes for the two years after the uh, the genocide you know it's Building on top of that has never been done before. In, and I think the expectation was Rwanda would just become yet another failed African state, you know, like Somalia, Central African Republic, Sudan, where you it never quite manages to function again. So the fact Rwanda does function today as well as it does, um, even though it's clearly got a whole way to go, is, is quite impressive. But in a way, it's moving forward with the knowledge of such a painful past, not just of 94. Uh, and I hope the book sort of spells out that it goes back, you know, a couple of generations before that. It's building on the pain of the colonial period, building on the terrible pain of Keir Banda's First Republic, and building on the pain and suffering and the marginalisation of the 70s and 80s and the early 90s um, where no one was free and uh, life was um, just you know a, just a whole bunch of suffering really uh, with not much to look forward to so um, you know Kigali today it's it's a young place you know so many people there are obviously you, you need to be aged above 25 and a lot of the population aren't um, it's a very young population, a vibrant population. Um, and I think that'll be interesting to see moving forward. So for the 30th or the 35th commemorations, how they play out as the history becomes that much more remote. Um, uh, and I think it's, it, but it is important uh, to remember where Rwanda has come from to understand where it's going. Well, it's a terrific book, and I learned a lot, as I, as I, as I said. Um, and I encourage people to, to go get it and read it and um, learn from it as well. I always end these interviews with the same two questions, and so I'll end uh, our discussion with those. And the first one is, um, and, and we talked about this in the uh, chat before the interview, I'm leaving for Europe. I've got uh, some amount of time on planes and trains that I don't want to think about now. Um, what what book or possibly film or documentary or something, what should I read on that trip that was meaningful to you while you were writing this book? Well, uh, I'm a huge fan and I've come to him fairly late in the day, but I've discovered him and I'm slowly getting through his, uh, his books of the Austrian Jewish writer, who I'm sure you know well, uh, called Joseph Roth. Uh, Joseph Roth was um, uh, say an Austrian Jew. It's difficult to say where he's from because he spends his life living out of suitcases. He's uh, the most incredibly wonderful journalist. He sees everything. He is an alcoholic. He is, um, uh, one, one person said, he's a vagabond. He's a liar. He's, um, he never had a single book. He, he never read any of his own books. Um, but it, the most incredible eye and his, I suppose his one major work, the Radetzky March, uh, 
he looks he always looks back and that's what I love about him he looks back into this sort of era he's writing in the late 20s 30s the, the Habsburg Empire the sort of the tail end how this Habsburg Empire Emperor Joseph Franz Joseph uh, it all slowly unravels towards the end and this this halcyon days before the First World War um, but I would certainly, I think, and if you if you get into the Radetzky March, you will you will certainly start to read through his other books because I I, I think he's an incredible writer. Um, the poignancy of what he's writing, um, the, the sense of a, a world unraveling, um, and he can't quite make sense of it, um, is wonderful. And you know, unfortunately, he committed suicide in. Uh, in Paris, he was forced uh, into exile by the Nazis, and he committed uh, suicide. Uh, and unfortunately, his wife also was was um, had some mental health issues, and she was targeted for the euthanasia program by the Nazis. So, uh, a fairly tragic individual, um, but his um, his work is is I would say quite wonderful. That seems particularly appropriate given my. Um given my travel schedule with Vienna and Krakow on the list and, and possibly Budapest. so And then I always end the same way. Do you have another book in the works? I know that you said this one took you um, a little time. Uh, are you working on another one about Rwanda or something else? Or w w what's your future plans? Well, uh, it's an interesting, uh, interesting question. I'm sort of drawing breath after this one. Um, uh, after the first one on France, I, I swore never again and somehow... Seven years later, uh, the sensible thing would be to say never again. But, um, <laughs> writers being what they are, um, actually, an area, uh, another book which I would sort of recommend, which is uh, I found really interesting, is the the the, the diary by a, um, a Polish uh, teenager, um, David uh, Sierkowiak, um, and. To many in Poland, they would say he is the, the equivalent of Anne Frank. Um, he was writing while in the Lodz ghetto. Um, and the, his diary is is quite an incredible piece of work. Um, unfortunately, it tails off towards the end and, and David uh, died uh, in the ghetto and did 70 or 80,000 others, uh, basically uh, starved to death. Uh, but his diary over the three years, um, 41 to about 43, um, is a, such a moving uh, but incisive. It, it, this is um, a young individual with an incredible mind. He, he seemed to speak about four languages. Uh, he seemed to know philosophy and theology. Um, and it's an incredible diary of seeing what he saw around him in the ghetto, uh, being able to observe and to analyse what was going on. And obviously facing his own demise and that of his family while he was there. So, um, yeah, that that I'm thinking of. Uh, I spent February walking around the ghetto area in uh, in in Lutz. Um and so I'm I'm that could be the next uh, area for some some research. Um, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> non committed Well, if that happens. <laughs> We would love to have you on the show again, but I want to say thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it, and um, and I hope that uh, we get a chance to chat again. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kelly, for um, for, for listening, for your, for your questions, and um, uh, it's been a joy to, uh, to talk. You've been listening to an interview with Andrew Wallace about his new book, Stepped in Blood, Akazu and the Architects of the Rwandan Genocide of the Tutsis. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or Stitcher or other podcast providers, or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll join me next time when I'll talk with Paul Thomas Chamberlain about his new book, The Cold War's Killing Fields. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.